May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today we remember the Feast of the Holy Cross, which the proper date for that is September 14th, but we have transferred it to today the first Sunday after Holy Cross Day. And if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard the story before. And if that's true of you, please bear with me for a moment, because in all honesty, I did not know this story until a few years ago. And it's something that I didn't learn in seminary, in any church history class or anything else. So here we go. In the year 312, the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. You've probably heard at least that part before. The night before he was going out to have a battle against his major rival, Maxentius, Constantine had a dream or perhaps a vision where the clouds opened and a cross descended from the heavens. And across this cross in Latin, was inscribed the phrase, in this sign, conquer. And multiple uh, historical sources have confirmed this story. So this was apparently something that Constantine liked to tell his friends a lot. I had this vision, I saw the cross, I went out the following day and defeated Maxentius, and now I'm the emperor of Rome. The sincerity of Constantine's conversion is debated all the way down to the present because, on the one hand, he used Christianity to consolidate his power, to reunite an empire that had already been fractured into East and West, and to proclaim himself the true emperor of Rome. Convenient, politically, for sure, but on the other hand, he wrote extensively and passionately about his faith in Christ throughout the rest of his life. So whether this was something that was a political convenience or a true personal conversion, or perhaps a little bit of both, is something that we still don't know for sure. But what we do know for sure is that very soon after his conversion, Constantine sent his mother, St. Helena, to Jerusalem to try to find out if this true cross of Christ that he had seen coming down from heaven in this vision was still around. So he sent her there to recover the true cross, and the story that you have probably heard is that Helena went and was led by divine inspiration to the basement of a Roman temple where she discovered the cross, Mount Calvary, and the tomb where Jesus was laid all basically in one little closet in the cistern of a Roman temple. Historian Dearman McCullough puts a little bit of doubt into this story that you might have heard before because he says in that generation no one wrote anything about St. Helena discovering the cross. In fact, it was as soon as Constantine put the word out that he was looking for it, it was recovered almost immediately, which suggests one of two things. First, it was either a very uh, carefully crafted forgery, or second, the church in Jerusalem had actually kept track of these things, knowing them to be of some value 
and they were able to recover them very quickly. The story of Helena recovering the cross became popular about a generation or two later, and it was the bishops of Jerusalem who told this story because Jerusalem had, there was a great war between 66 and 70. The Romans had leveled the city, and Jerusalem had basically sat in ruins for almost two centuries. And the bishops of Jerusalem saw this link to imperial power as an opportunity to reclaim what they saw as their rightful place in in Christendom. This is the true center of the faith, and even the emperor himself knew it and sent his mother here to discover the cross. I bring this story up today because it can be easy for us in our day and age to become short-sighted, to think that the things that we struggle with today are new to our time. But the truth is that the relationship between church and the centers of power, the power of princes and kings and empires, has been debated since the Edict of Milan made Christianity an officially recognized religion in 313. Because within the first two generations of Christianity becoming mainstream, the cross was used first of all to consolidate power under the banner of the Emperor Constantine, and then second, it was used by the bishops in Jerusalem to promote the significance of their city and to attract pilgrims from across the empire to come and see what it was all about. Even Holy Cross Day, which we remember today, is not a celebration of the discovery of the cross. It's the celebration of the dedication of the great imperial church of the Holy Sepulchre that was built on the spot where Helena was said to have discovered these items in a basement. And I know some of you will be seeing the Church of the Holy Sepulchre here in a few months, so it's a magnificent site. It is worthy of exploration, but that's what this day commemorates, is the dedication of that beautiful imperial church. Because before Constantine, the church existed underground, and when I say underground, I mean quite literally underground. The earliest artifacts we have from the church have been discovered in catacombs. People would go into caverns and tunnels built underneath the cities to worship in secret. Because if you worshipped in the light of day in those days, it could cost you everything. Christians were socially ostracized. They were persecuted. Some were even executed because they offered a vision of reality that did not accord with the version of reality promoted by the empire. You see, in the early church, slaves and slave owners would sit down together and share a meal. Men and women would sit and talk as equals and respect one another without the the expectations of family guiding their conversations. The church opened their homes and they shared their bread with their neighbors in times of plenty and in times of famine. It was a dangerous reality that the Roman authorities did not particularly care for, and so they did then what governments today still do. They initiated a smear campaign. 
They said these Christians are cannibals because they gather together and eat the body and blood. And if you join them, you too will suffer this same fate of torture, of execution. And no, these first Christians weren't perfect, but they tried to live their lives differently, with purpose and with conviction. And things radically changed after Constantine became emperor and made Christianity an official religion. And suddenly the church looked to empire for its hope. But this is not a uniquely Christian phenomenon because the reading that we have in Isaiah 45 this morning tells us of a similar situation where the people of Israel are living in exile and they've been in Babylon in captivity for over a generation now. And a new imperial power is on the rise, King Cyrus of Persia. Isaiah 45 begins with a shocking proclamation. Cyrus, the non-Jewish king of Persia, is God's anointed. A word that we would commonly translate into English as Messiah. Cyrus is this messianic figure who is going to accomplish God's purpose to bring freedom from captivity. And the people begin to look to Cyrus. And Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on a, in Isaiah, says that this is no mistake. In fact, this proclamation of God's favor over the Persian king was quite intentional because Israel, and often the church, wants to contain and limit the purpose of God to its own life. And here, in Isaiah 45, it is clear that Yahweh always looks well beyond the beloved community. You see, friends, it is not about empires. It's not about Babylon. It's not about Persia. It's about God's future, the kind of future that Paul writes about in Galatians chapter 6, when he says, For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but a new creation is everything. And it is this calling forth of a new creation that is at the heart of all of these readings today. Because by the end of Isaiah chapter 45, the part that we read today, God reminds the people that whoever the king, whoever the empire is, God is the one behind it all. Who promised freedom and peace from long ago? Who has brought you into safety before and will do it again? To whom will all knees bow and all tongues confess? Only I, the Lord. But time and again, despite God's intention to work with and through humanity, we see God's purposes thwarted. In John chapter 12, our gospel reading for today, Jesus has gone out to dinner with his friend Lazarus. And Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. So you can imagine Jesus and Lazarus walking into a restaurant together to have dinner created quite a commotion. And in fact, John 12 tells us that huge crowds had gathered around to see this sight. And the religious leaders of the day did not like it. You see, Jesus kept doing this. He kept showing up in places and healing people. He kept sitting down and having dinner with people who didn't fit in with the polite crowd. 
And everywhere he went, people followed him around because he was saying something different. The religious leaders in that day were threatened because they had allied themselves with the Herodians and the Romans. Their desire for power and for influence kept them from seeing the kingdom of God unfolding right before their eyes in a very new and a very different way. They lost sight of what was important because of their desire to be people who were important, who were wealthy, who were influential. And Jesus tells them this in very pointed terms today when he says, the ruler of this age your concern with power and wealth and status, your desire for conquest and materiality over spirituality and humility, that is being driven out. How? How is it being driven out? Jesus says this, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says, to indicate the kind of death he was to die. I will draw all people to myself. Friends, this is the scandal of the cross. This is something that Paul addresses over and over in his letters. How can the Messiah, God's anointed one, be humiliated, be crucified, and die in such a terrible way? And the answer that Paul comes back to over and over is this. It's not about empire, and it never was. It's about God's future. Paul tells the Philippians that if anyone could have taken this place of honor, if anyone could have promoted themselves as king and been rightly deserving of it, it was Jesus. But he didn't consider equality with God as something that he could obtain. And so he made himself a slave and suffered humiliation and death, even death on a cross. And Jürgen Moltmann in the way of Jesus Christ says this, Jesus was one of those people, a tortured, abused, and crucified slave. In the sense, the sufferings of Christ are also the sufferings of the powerless masses of the poor in this world who have no rights and no home. And in this sense, their sufferings, too, are Christ's sufferings. Because Jesus, who is free from pride and selfish ambition, who has no designs at power or influence, empties himself for others. He takes up the cross and pours out his own life. And this is the perfect image of God's future played out for all of us to see. A being for others. And it is no surprise that Paul ends this Christological hymn in Philippians 2 with the words of Isaiah 45. At this image of Jesus poured out for humanity, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that this is the Lord. Friends, the ruler of this age still tells us that power and wealth and influence are everything. And that's how we will make a difference. 
But it's not about empire, and it never was. Because Jesus calls us to live radically different, to be children of the light, to take up our crosses, to give ourselves away, and to follow him in his way of love. Friends, it's about living into our baptismal covenant of respecting the dignity of every human being and loving our neighbors as ourselves, without exception. And while I believe we must advocate for policies and laws that are just and kind, sometimes the most powerful message that we can preach is when we do what Jesus did and put our love into action. Before this week, I had never heard of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Martha's Vineyard. But this small community of faith showed what this radical, countercultural, self-emptying love looks like. They greeted 48 scared and confused migrants who showed up at their doorstep without warning, and they offered them a place to sleep. They offered them safety and security. They set up beds everywhere they could find room. They gave what they had, and it wasn't perfect. There weren't enough bathrooms in the church for all of those people. They couldn't sustain this forever, but they did what they could with what they had. They shared their bread. They opened their church. They tried to live differently. The hope that they shared didn't come through power or influence. They certainly got notoriety over what they did. But the root of it was sacrifice. This is God's future. Walking in the light so that the darkness does not overcome us.